Let's go ahead and uh, open in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you, Lord, for a wonderful day, Lord, a a Sunday after uh, Easter, Lord, that we can remember, Lord, what you did on the cross for us, Lord, that you died and, um, Lord, rose again, Lord, to pay the price for us, Lord, so that we can have a new life with you, Lord, and so that we can be restored in our relationship with you, Lord. Lord, just give us wisdom and understanding, Lord, we ask for an outpouring of your Holy Spirit, Lord, upon us, Lord, this day, Lord, as we hear your word, and, uh, and uh, Lord, just give us wisdom and discernment. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so pastor said I had about an hour and a half to uh, give a message, so just kidding, just kidding. Um, I can be long-winded, so I have worked on keeping this down. <laughs> um, so I want to show you a little, uh, a little example of something uh, that kind of caught my attention. This is a little clock that my father uh, had, and my father was a clock collector, and... Um, and so he kind of got me interested in clocks. And so about 45 years ago, I was a seven to eight-year-old little guy. And my father had just picked me up from school and taken me back to our Main Street uh, storefront in a little town called Westminster in Maryland. And um, uh, he would have customers come in um, and look at kitchens. So he was a custom kitchen guy. He built kitchens. And so uh, he asked me to, to, to stay in his office and to be quiet, okay, so not to disturb anyone. So uh, back in, in that time, we didn't have, uh, you know, cell phones, we didn't have tablets, we didn't have computers to, to play with, to entertain the, the young, young people of the day. So um, I had, a, you know, paper, a pencil, uh, things to look at, and one of, one of the things was this little clock. And so this little clock, uh, this is uh, probably around 1920, 1930 uh, clock. And um, so I I don't know where my father got it from, but it was sitting on his desk. And so um, I noticed it wasn't ticking, it wasn't running. So I began to wind it. And and then it still didn't go, so I wound it more and I kept winding it until it got to the point where I couldn't wind it any further. And... I was I was baffled by why why it wouldn't work. So I uh, when my father came to collect me, I asked him. I said, uh, "What's up with the clock? What's wrong with the clock? You know, I, I wound it, but it's not running." And um, so he, he he got a little upset and said, "Well, you know, you overwound it. It's it's bound up. It's locked now." And so now I'm going to have to take it apart or I'm going to have to take it to a clock place to get it to fixed. Well, unfortunately, that, that event never happened. Uh, so this clock, this little clock sat uh, in my, my dad's office for a while and then it, and then it got moved out to the, the family house and, and sat in an office out there for many years, way past his death. And... Uh, and then about 10 years ago, I was visiting my mother back east, and she said, is there anything here that you'd like to take back with you that has some memory for you? And I remember this little clock, so this was an easy thing to put in a suitcase. And then it, it sat out here for quite a while. And then about six months ago, uh, you know, I have coffee with my wife in the morning, and we face the bookshelf that has this on it. And so... It was really bothering me, and I was thinking, you know, 
45 years ago, I locked that clock up, and I, I, that needs to be restored. It needs to be fixed. So I began to watch YouTube videos. I took this apart several times. I got some clock oil. I uh, got some tools to, to, to take care of it. And eventually, I was able to get it working. And so as you can, I don't know if you can hear that ticking, but it's ticking. It tells time now. It does what it was designed and created to do. And, I, you know, uh, I felt that little nudge, you know, when you feel God trying to tell you something. And that was about being restored. And sometimes we carry around things in our lives that have been bound up within us for 45 years or maybe longer or maybe a shorter period of time, and it's things that we, um, we don't want to deal with. Oh, well, there's not a bottom in that, so I'm afraid I'm going to throw that pencil or do something with it, so I don't know what to do with it. Uh, anyway, uh, so uh, there's things in our lives that we need to, that we need to deal with, and, and restoration is one of those things. Uh, if we look in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 61.1, um, Jesus quotes Isaiah in Luke 4.17-19. And Jesus says this, he says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from um, captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. And this is a very interesting passage. Isaiah is prophesying the Messiah, and then Jesus the Messiah quotes Isaiah and confirms that. So Jesus had just come off of um, uh, his wilderness journey where he was fasting for 40 days, 40 nights. He was tempted then by, by Satan, and he had come into the temple. And he was handed this scroll. He didn't ask for this scroll. He was handed that scroll. There was lots of different scrolls, but he was handed this one. And then he said, uh, after he read this, that this has been fulfilled in the reading of this today. And so he was, he was saying, I am the Messiah. I am fulfilling this. And it's interesting if we look at the different pieces in this scripture. It talks about preach the good news to the poor. And those who are humble, meek, and lowly. Okay, that's, that's the first point. Uh, and that's what we do when we reach out into our community. Uh, that's what we do when we uh, reach out uh, on missions fields uh, to people who are in uh, poor situations. Uh, bind up the brokenhearted. Uh, the picture of that is, is having uh, you know, a, uh, a porcelain uh, vase or something where you drop it and it breaks. And... You, you, you glue it and you, you tape it and you bind it up to keep it together. And then once it's set, you can take that off. But bind up the brokenhearted. Brokenhearted are those who are hurt, those who have pain and, and have been through kinds of a trauma in their lives. And then it says, proclaim freedom for the captives, those who are enslaved. And those are people who have... Uh, addictions, those who are stuck in some type of uh, sin or situation where they can't seem to get out of, or maybe a lifestyle that they're stuck in. They can't get free from that. 
And then lastly, release the prisoners in darkness. And those are the people who are in confined in a, in a prison cell in darkness. They cannot see. And those people are the lost. Okay, So, so this is kind of Jesus' uh, proclamation of this is why I was sent. This is, you know, we talk about the Great Commission. This is, in a sense, Christ's commission. This is, a, this is a, a focus in on this is why I came. This is what I'm here to do. And if we sum that all up, that's about restoration. Um, so Christ came to bring restoration, and he is our role model. And we, we see that in, um, in uh, 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. We see that uh, we are to follow... Uh, Paul is speaking, and he says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Um, you know, um, that's, uh, that's a plug for discipleship also. Um, that's, that's right, Ethan? Yeah, exactly. Um, and then in 1 Peter 1, 14 to 16, it says, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. And so and there, there's other, plenty of other verses that could, could go through, but it talks about Christ being the role model in our lives. He's the one who is the perfect image of what we are to be like. And in the CMA, one of the tenets of the CMA is Jesus is our Savior, our healer, our sanctifier, and coming king. Sanctification is a process that we go through to become more Christ-like. Um, so when you, when you came to Christ, uh, your, your, life wasn't per- your life didn't automatically become perfect, did it? And there were a few things maybe that you struggled with in your life that fell off, like maybe you had, a, maybe you had an issue with drinking, and uh, maybe after you got saved, you, you know, that went away. But there's, there were probably other things in your life that you struggled with, that you didn't get the victory over. And so that's all part of that process of sanctification, becoming more Christ-like. And how do we do that? Um, and so uh, we struggle with things. Uh, we're not perfect. The world thinks that we're supposed to be perfect, you know, they often would, will call us hypocrites because, well, you know, you know, you're not supposed to have any issues or problems in your life. The difference between us before Christ and after Christ, of course, is Christ in our heart, but it is really comes down to uh, Hebrews 13.5 that Christ says that I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we all go through struggles in life, we go through challenges, we go through difficult things in life with health, with our wealth, with our um, uh, relationships and things like that that we face, but we have Christ with us. Before we were saved, we didn't realize that we had a constant companion. After Christ, we know we have a constant companion who will be with us from now throughout all eternity. And one thing I like to always say is that that, um, God has not promised us a life of comfort, but he has promised us a life of companionship. 
He will never leave us nor forsake us. And that is the, that is the reassurance that we can face whatever life throws at us, knowing that Christ is with us, that he walks with us. He's our constant companion. And since he is our constant companion, we want to be more like him. We want to be um, restored uh, to be more like him. So what keeps us from being more Christ-like? So uh, one, of the, one of the big things is, is there is a battle going on. Uh, there's a battle going on right now. We can't see it, but there's a battle going on all around us right now. It's a spiritual battle for the hearts and souls of you and me, of our kids, of our family, our community, our state, our nation, and the world. It is a spiritual battle, and the Bible is very clear about this battle. Um, Ephesians 6, 11 to 12 um, says this. It says, Put on the full armor of God so that you may take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Heavenly realms is, is a description, is talking about the spiritual world, the spiritual dimension. Uh, it's not talking about heaven itself. It's talking about the, the spiritual world. So it says, put on the, whole, the full armor of God. Why would we put on armor if we're not going into a battle, right? It implies you need to have your armor on. If, if any of you were in the military and you were deployed, uh, if you don't have your weapon with you or you don't have your helmet and, and your gear with you, you are unprepared. So what the Bible is saying here in Ephesians, Paul is telling us, be prepared. You're in a battle. And even if you don't think you're in a battle, you are in a battle. So we need to have the full armor of God. Uh, we need to put that on. The enemy doesn't want us to realize that we're in a battle. He wants us to uh, just be, you know, sitting out on the couch, relaxing and being oblivious to what's going on around us. But there is a battle going on. Um, and so for us as Christians... Our souls are already, you know, we've already aligned ourselves with Christ, okay? So that part of the battle is done with us as Christians. But there's still an ongoing battle within us for our hearts. So our soul is, you know, we are going to heaven if we've accepted Christ into our heart. But our hearts themselves, we have to keep realigning with God because our heart is desperately wicked, and, and we have a tendency to, to look toward uh, solutions in the world and try to solve our own problems. So, um, so a little bit more of a glimpse into this battle uh, we get from 2 Kings 6, 15-17. And it says this, When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early in the next morning, an army of horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. And so, uh, and I'll just take a little break there. So 
Elisha is, is a prophet back in uh, this time in Israel, and he had a servant, um, and Elisha was um, telling the king of Israel what this raiding army was going to do next. So God was telling Elisha, hey, this army is going to invade Israel over here, so be prepared. And so Elisha would go tell the king of Israel, hey, be prepared because they're going to be coming through this way. And so this king was getting very frustrated. So he said, he asked his advisors, how is it, he thought maybe there was a spy in his, <laughs> in his kingdom, but they said, it is because the prophet Elisha keeps telling the king of Israel what you're going to do. And so he said, I can't, I can't have that. So he sends his army to go capture Elisha. And, and read, read this whole chapter because it's, it's really, really incredible. It's actually kind of comical what happens at the end, but uh, not enough time to go into that. If I had an hour and a half, I could, but, but 35, 40 minutes, I, I, I can't do that. Anyway, uh, but read that on your own. So it said, so Elisha says to him, don't be afraid. The prophet answered, uh, those who are with us are more than those, uh, more, those who are with us are more than against us. Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes so he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So this was a reality that Elisha could see, and of course God was involved in it and doing it. Um, He was the one doing it. Uh, But the servant could not see. His eyes were blinded. He could not see into the spiritual world. And so Elisha prayed, he was able to see that there is a battle going on. Although things in the physical look one way, in the spiritual they're a different way. Uh, We also get a little glimpse of it in Daniel 10, uh, 12 to 14. And when Daniel prayed for the answer to uh, a dream interpretation, uh, an angel was dispatched to him, but it took 21 days for the angel to get to him. And the angel said, I was held up by the prince of Persia, which was a, a demonic force at that time in that area. And, and it wasn't until the archangel Michael came to help him that, he, that that message was able to get through. So Satan wants to hold back the message of God's restoration, of God's word to the lost and to the church. And so he wants to put every, any kind of barrier or uh, obstacle in the way. There's a battle going on. And so this gives us a glimpse of that. There's, there's some other key passages we could look at too, but those are just some of the major ones. So uh, what hinders our restoration? The battle, of course, but Satan uses deception. And in John 4, um, sorry, John 8, 44, the, the second half of the verse, uh, Jesus is talking about Satan, and he talks about, he was talking to the Pharisees and tell, telling them, you know, that they're not, they don't have the right heart, they're not doing the right thing. And then he goes on to say, he was a murderer, talking about Satan, from the beginning, not holding to the truth. For there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his, his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. 
So Satan is a liar. He is an accuser. Um, and he works in deception. So when we, when we think about how Satan works, um, he uses deception. That's what he does. He doesn't twist our arm. He just tempts us, and he, tw- and he gets us to bend, bend our, our way of thinking toward him. And so deception is his number one strategy. So he uses deception. He also uses uh, guilt and shame to weigh us down. Um, there's things that we're, where we think in life where, you know, it's just too much pain to take this thing apart. It's just too much work to do it. So I'm just going to keep looking at this sitting on the shelf for another five years, another ten years, another however long, and I don't want to go through the hassle of dealing with it. But sometimes we have to deal with those things if we want to get to restoration. And um, so uh, Satan used deception all the way back to um, the fall in um, Genesis. So with Adam and Eve, if you think about it, he didn't he didn't have uh, he didn't have Eve at gunpoint and and telling Adam, hey, you better eat of that fruit or else, you know, it wasn't that kind of duress where he tried to force. He used deception, and deception is the the difficult part because we can't you don't know you're deceived until you know that you are deceived. <laughs> So, so how does he implement this? The Bible gives us some interesting clues. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4, it says this, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this world, meaning Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So this is saying that Satan has blinded their mind and their eyes so that they cannot see the gospel. So, you know, if you've witnessed to someone before and you feel like you're, it's going in one ear and out the other, it's because there's a veil over their eyes, over their ears, over their heart. And this is Satan's strategy, not only for the lost who don't know Christ, but for us as Christians in our pursuit of sanctification to become more Christ-like, Satan wants us to also remain blinded in certain areas that we can't see. Um, so what are veils? What, what kind of things would they be? Well, think of veils are types of philosophies, ways of thinking, patterns. Um, We are not to be conformed to the patterns of this world, but we are to be renewed by the renewing of our mind. We are to have, uh, be uh, in the Word of God, um, being aligned with truth. That's number one what we should be doing. But what are veils? Veils are like illusions that make us think one thing and ignore something else. So, uh, in, in my Sunday school class, we talk, we talk about worldview. We talk about glasses. And different people can look at the same set of facts, 
But if they're wearing a different set of glasses, it's called their worldview. It's the way that they, when they look at facts in life, when they evaluate them, they evaluate them through these glasses that filter. And so you, you either see, you see something and you say, well, that's evolutionary or this was created. That's a way of thinking. And so we must be mindful of worldviews. Um, so evolution, obviously, is one of the biggest ones. It, is, it, it tries to undermine the um, infallibility and the solidness of the Bible. Because if we begin at Genesis and we say, you know what, I don't believe the first part of Genesis, then where do you stop? It's a slippery slope. Um, we either believe God's testimony or we don't. But the world has this philosophy that if there is no God, um, then there are no moral absolutes. There's no right and wrong. There's no purpose, no meaning to life. Life is all meaningless, and uh, I can define right and wrong however I want to. And that's exactly what we see in our culture today. You can define whatever you want. You can be whatever you want to be, <laughs> that kind of thing. But uh, that is a veil over their eyes. Um, cultural beliefs. Uh, missionaries run into this problem all the time. Different types of religious beliefs or cultural beliefs. Um, they, they run into those issues. Those are struggles. Um, family uh, types of uh, veils. Well, my family's always been Irish Catholic, for example, you know, not that that's necessarily wrong, but I'm just saying you have those traditions that you, that I can only go this way. And with Mormonism is, is obviously a very strong one. Um, I can only go this way because that's what I was taught, and that's the only way that it can be. And so we limit and we define God and we define what is possible and what we can do based on the veils that are over our eyes. Um, and then Jesus talks about this also. In Matthew uh, 13, 14 to 15, and Jesus is quoting Isaiah again. Um, Isaiah is a, is a wonderful book, a lot of interesting things in it. But he says this in verse 14. He says, In this is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused, and they hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. And so Jesus is talking about the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders of the day, they were standing right in front of the Messiah. They were talking to the Messiah, the one whom Isaiah was talking about, the one who the whole Old Testament is referring to, and they could not see it because they had veils over their eyes. They, and even the disciples, to some degree, at some point, were thinking that the Messiah was going to be a political, military leader who would free Israel from Roman oppression. And so that was a veil over their eyes. They could not see that. So veils are, are very, very powerful. 
and there's something that we need to take account of. So uh, I don't know if you remember the TV show from the 60s called The Outer Limits, and this is a veil defining what its intentions are very clearly. <laughs> it's very interesting. And it says this, this, this was the opening line to The Outer Limits. There is nothing wrong with your television. Do not attempt to adjust the picture. We are now controlling the transmission. We control the horizontal and the vertical. We can deluge you with a thousand channels or expand to one single image of crystal clarity and beyond. We can shape your vision to anything our imagination can conceive. For the next hour, we will control all that you see and hear. You are about to experience the all in mystery which reaches from the deepest inner mind to the outer limits. And it's, it's a very wow kind of thing because they're just saying it in plain, in plain sight. You know, it's, they're not hiding it. And this is really what, what uh, media and entertainment and television has become. An extremely strong veil. It tells us what to believe because they control what we see and hear. Uh, you know, what's a controversy and what's a uh, not a controversy? What's a conspiracy theory and what's not a conspiracy theory? What is true and what is not true has become very blurred and very difficult to understand. That's why we have to pray for discernment. But this is a thing that Satan uses, a strategy that he uses. We have to be mindful of the veils in our lives. And if I had a, which I was going to do, but I forgot to do, I was going to put a, a little piece of paper on my back with a black spot. And I can, I don't know that I have that there. I can't see it. It doesn't matter how hard I look. I can't see it. But if I turn around, walk around, you guys could see it. But I can't see the spot on my back. And that's where we need the Holy Spirit to, and, uh, to reveal those things to us or through others, our loved ones, to say, hey, there's this thing in your life. You know, I don't, I don't think you're quite seeing that correctly. So those are um, veils. The next uh, thing that the enemy uses in our lives are strongholds. And uh, so what are strongholds? Um, so let's, let's uh, first look at uh, 2 Corinthians 10, 4-5. And it says this, The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of, this, of the world. On the contrary, they, are, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient. So, this section here is talking about strongholds in our lives. Uh, strongholds were uh, like fortified um, uh, uh, walled garrison cities back in, back in the ancient times. And so when an invading army would, would come into the area, they would have a lot of resistance when they came to a, a walled city, a stronghold. Um, and so there would be soldiers in there and things like that. So that's the military picture of it. But what is it that they actually are in our lives? Well, there's two kinds of strongholds that um, I have 
come across or seen in the Bible. And one is, is willful sin, things that we don't want to give up, or things we just can't kick, or maybe it's, a, it's something we just can't get past. And um, it could be an addiction. It could be something like that that we just can't get over. And because we have sin that we have not confessed and we have not released to God, it gives the enemy access into our lives. Okay? The other kind of stronghold is one of, of hurt and pain and of trauma. So, uh, you know, if someone was abused when they were a toddler or, or a younger person, um, or maybe it was a, um, a failed marriage, or maybe it was through a divorce where uh, as a child you felt abandoned by, uh, you, know, you know, mother or father, or maybe it was a horrific uh, accident or some type of, uh, of, of event where someone that you loved was lost and, and maybe you blame God. But bitterness, resentment, and unforgiveness well up within people through those events. And a lot of times the, the, um, there's sin there because there's no, there's no forgiveness. There's no resolution to that. And so we build things around those areas of our lives to protect us. We build walls around it because we don't want to deal with it. But with that unforgiveness, again, it's sin, and it allows the enemy access into our lives. Um, and we look, we look for any kind of solution. The world's solution to pain and trauma is, is, is a bad solution <laughs> because the world's solution is alcohol, drugs, looking for love in all the wrong places, um, uh, materialism, power, um, those types of things that lead to even more addiction. Um, so that's not, that's not the direction we should go. We want, Christ wants us to be free. He came to set us free. He came to bring restoration into our lives, not more addiction. And so in uh, Judges 6, 25 to 27, here's another wonderful passage. Read the whole chapter of Judges 6. Uh, it's a very interesting, interesting story. Um, so Gideon um, was in the lowest tribe and the least in his family, and, uh, but he found favor in, in God's eyes. The angel of the Lord came to visit him, and um, he was saying uh, you know, what all the other people of Israel were saying, God, you've abandoned us. Uh, these Midianites, this was another uh, people group in the area, were raiding and destroying uh, Israel uh, their uh, fields, their their dwelling places, and things like that. It was so bad they were living in caves at the time. And um, so he says, "Why have you abandoned us?" And so the angel of the Lord says, "You know, calls him a, a mighty warrior kind of uh, thing." And, and he's like, "No, not me." And but but the angel of the Lord says, "I'm going to help you, but I need you to do this." And then so in verse 25 it says. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and a second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Ashereth tree, or the Ashereth that is beside it, 
and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold. Here, um, and with stones laid in due due order. Then take the second bull uh, and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Ashereth that you cut that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. Uh, but because he was afraid of his family and the men of the town, he did it. He didn't do it by day. He did it by night. So uh, this is uh, really a very interesting thing. God wanted to help, but he said, you got to do this first. You got to tear down, what was the word they used? A stronghold. And so this was an altar to Baal, um, and this was allowing the enemy, the Midianites, into the land. So the Old Testament a lot of times gives us a picture physically of the spiritual world that we live in today. And so if you're experiencing things in your lives where the enemy is coming into your life and uh, you feel like you're being uh, attacked, maybe there is a stronghold that you need to deal with. And so after this, uh, Gideon was able to uh, really um, pretty much wipe out most of the Midianites. Uh, God really used him to do that. But they had to tear down those strongholds first. The Ashereth was, um, was something that was used in the worship of Baal. It was like a tree. So he cut down this tree, used the wood for the burnt offering, and it was a, it's a displacement of what was there. So something that was bad that was there to worship an idol, a false god and actually Satan himself, was torn down and replaced by something that was honoring God. And uh, so this is, a, this is a beautiful picture of exactly what we need to do in our lives when it comes to strongholds. So this is a picture that I wanted to paint of the spiritual battlefield in our lives. So, you know, if we want to get from here to there uh, on a battlefield, there's obstacles in the way. There's veils over our eyes to keep us from seeing the, the, the potholes, the, the traps, the, uh, the things that try to keep us away from God. Then there's the strongholds that where we haven't surrendered in our lives, where we're still allowing the enemy access to us. Um, and so in order to get to God, to get closer to him, to be more Christ-like, we have to deal with these things in our lives. And so... Um, so I want to I want to give us a uh, an action plan. Um, so put on the whole armor of God. Okay, we talked about that earlier in Ephesians six, um, and it's there for a reason. It's not there for oh you look nice in your uniform, you know. It's there for a reason. Um, you know, get into the Word, uh, spend time worshiping God, spend time praying. And one of our greatest weapons, uh, of course, is the Word of God. It's the sword of truth. But also, alongside that, is prayer. We cannot underestimate the power of prayer. And especially, you know, we, we saw, we saw the, um, the video a little bit before this, talking about um, the difficulties of, of missionaries getting into certain places and trying to reach people because they have a veil over their eyes. 
And so if you have loved ones in your family that don't know the Lord, this is a strategic way to pray for them. You pray against the veils over their eyes. You pray about that God would remove those veils, that he would shine his light of his truth past those veils, so that they would see the error of those ways of thinking, that they would be destroyed, um, and that the strongholds in their lives, uh, addictions and things like that, and maybe bitterness and unforgiveness would be removed out of their lives. Um, and so this, this, is, this is a picture for the lost when we want to reach out to the lost, and also for ourselves in our journey toward sanctification, being more Christ-like. We need to personally consider veils and strongholds in our lives. So put on the whole armor of God, resist the devil and he will flee, James 4, 7. Pray for discernment for God to help you. Psalm 139, 23 to 24 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And that's where we need that discernment. The black uh, ink spot or black, a spot on the back of my, between my shoulder blades, I can't see it. Uh, you know, we can't see, we can see other people's blinders. We can see other people's veils. We can say, oh, you know, if I was them, I would do this. Or, you know, uh, we, we can see that, but we cannot see it in ourselves. And that's where we need brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. And that's where we also need to pray for God's revelation in our heart to show us what we need to change. Um, so pray fervently against the veils and strongholds in your life. Uh, pray for your kids. Uh, pray for the influence. Now remember, you know, when we grew up, there were different types of veils. There were different types of influences. There were different types of, of, of strongholds. There were different types of pitfalls. There's a whole different version of them today. And in school and in education, the things that they're being taught, we have to pray against those things. We have to talk with our kids we, and our loved ones and, and those in our family to make sure that they understand what the truth is so that you can tell. If you know what the truth is, you can tell what a lie is, what's, what's deception. Um, and then also surrender uh, before God. In 1 Peter 5, 7, it says, Cast all your cares on him. And that always, and I mentioned this before in a previous message, when you cast something, you're giving it away. I'm, I'm casting something to, to John or to Mark. And, and I'm, yeah, I'm not going to hit you with anything. But it's leaving my possession. I'm not saying, hey, look at this, and then taking it back. I'm casting it. I'm, I'm giving up ownership. So surrender it before God um, and, try, and stop trying to fix it on your own. So... If those of you who have recently bought a house, and I've heard a lot of plumbing problems lately, uh, I've had my fair uh, share of plumbing problems in my lifetime in the houses that we've had. So let's say you're one of those do-it-yourself people, and you have a leak in the basement, and you 
are trying to fix it yourself. You get duct tape, you get something, you try all kinds of crazy ideas, but nothing works. And you, you keep getting water flooding. You keep getting water flooding. So what are you going to do? You're going to call a plumber. So the plumber comes to your door and knocks on your door and you go, oh, that's the plumber. But I'm not going to let him in. How is he going to fix your pipes, right? So you have to, that's what we have to do in our hearts. That's with Christ. Christ is the restorer of pipes, our broken pipes. Just like the plumber comes to your house, if you want to get your plumbing fixed, you have to open the door to let the plumber in. It's the same thing with God in our lives. When we want, when we have a, a situation where we're like, I don't know how to fix this problem. I've struggled with it for 45 years. I've, I've done this, I've done that. I've gone to this thing, I've done this. I've tried drugs and alcohol. I've tried what the world's solutions were, but none of them worked. When, you, when you've given up, you need to go to the great restorer, the one who is the one who restores. So open the door and let him in. We have to actively use our will to open that door. We don't do anything, okay? I'm going to make sure that's clear. We don't restore ourselves, just like we don't save ourselves. We open the door to the one who does do that, who can do that.